Well, it certainly is a joy to open God's Word together with you. If you have your Bibles and you'd like to, I'll invite you to turn to Psalm 110. As you do so, let me pray. Mighty God, the fountain of all wisdom, enlightened by your Holy Spirit, those who speak and those who listen, that rejoicing in the knowledge of your truth, we all may worship you and serve you from generation to generation. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Well, providentially, in the past couple of weeks, the world's attention has been turned to the United Kingdom. As Queen Elizabeth's reign, the reign that's the longest for any British monarch, it's ended. And King Charles has become the first new monarch to take that throne in over 70 years. Now, based on my research, depending on how closely you define the term, there's something like 42 nations ruled by a monarch today. Granted, all, all but a few of these are just figureheads with limited power, just like the kings and queens of England. But on paper, over half a billion people live in lands officially ruled by one sovereign head of state. Now, of course, in America, we fought a war to get rid of our king. We are committed to individual rights and self-government. No one person gets to tell me what to do. You know, besides the one president, the nine Supreme Court justices, the 100 senators, 435 representatives, 50 state governments, and four and a half million or so civilian government employees. But the ultimate reality is, we all know the truth. The truth spoken by that great theologian of our day, Bob Dylan. You're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil, or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. You may live in a monarchy, or in a republic, or in a dictatorship, or on a commune, or in an anarcho-capitalist utopia, but ultimately, there is no true autonomy. There is only one king in the universe, and if you reject him... Your only other option is slavery to a brutal usurper of his throne. And who, as we will see in this psalm, is already a defeated foe. Scripture does not speak of the republic of God, nor of Christ as the elected representative that we all got together and picked as our leader. But it tells us of a kingdom over which Jesus is the absolute sovereign and Lord. Our shorter catechism explains this role that he has in question and answer 26. It says, Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. Psalm 110 is the Old Testament passage referred to the most in the New. And in it, Christ the King is put on vivid display. Far from a weak figurehead, and far from a self-obsessed tyrant, King Jesus is worthy, kind, gracious, and just. He's a good and loving king 
whose reign is for the good of his own people, even as he shows his own glory in his defeat of evil. So as we walk through the psalm together, we're going to focus on four aspects of Jesus' kingship. We'll see he is the God king, the reigning king, the priest king, and the warrior king. That's our outline, which is found in the back of the bulletin if you want to follow along. Kids, you'll find the words for you to listen to in the normal place. So first, the God king. Notice first in the superscription, and I'm glad that Grant read it. This is a psalm written by David. Often we'll skip over these introductions at the top of the psalms. Mostly because we're not entirely sure what a masculine is or what according to Mahalath Leonoth might sound like. But when we read the psalms, we need to pay attention to these introductions, just like Mark Kuyper reminded us last week, because they give us important information on how to rightly interpret them. In order to correctly understand all that's going on in Psalm 110, we need to know that David is the author, and he's writing of God's revelation to him. In the psalm's opening scene, it reveals Yahweh talking to a lord, a king, who is greater than David. David opens by saying, the Lord says to my Lord. And you'll notice in most of your translations that that first Lord is in all capital letters, capital L-O-R-D. It notes that here we have the Hebrew name of God, Yahweh or Jehovah. But notice, though, who it is that God is addressing. This psalm was always taken as referring to the Messiah, a descendant of David. However, if you remember from our study of Luke, Jesus actually brought up this very passage in the theology quiz bowl that he had with the Pharisees. You can read it in Luke 20. Luke writes this, But he, Jesus, said to them, the Pharisees, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And in his gospel, Matthew adds that no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. How could they answer him? I mean, plainly, in this psalm, David is writing of his superior. But in Jewish thought, the father was always seen as greater than the son. The ancestor was greater than the descendants. There is no man on earth, especially one of his own descendants, that the great warrior king David would have called my lord. The king in view here is no mere man. He must be greater than man. This is no less than a statement of the deity of the Messiah. And notice what Yahweh says to David's Lord. He says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. The king sits on God's throne at God's right hand. This seat of honor, it communicates equality in dignity and authority. What man can claim equality with God? What king in history has been granted this authority not only over a kingdom or a people, 
but above creation, even above the angels. For anyone besides God to claim this throne for himself would be blasphemy. Yet we have David's Lord sitting at Yahweh's right hand. The king's authority here is over more than a single people or a geographical area or a point in time in history. Higher than man or even angels. We heard this in our New Testament reading from the writer of the Hebrews who said, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? No other person in history can claim the authority of this king in Psalm 110. And even more, this king is co-reigning with Yahweh. The king is holding the scepter, while the Lord is the one who extends it from Zion. David conquered the surrounding people, and he handed over to his son Solomon a kingdom that became glorious enough that foreign leaders flocked to come and to marvel at it. And yet, neither of these great kings of Israel had this close communion where they held the scepter and God sent it out. In our psalm here, the, the Messiah is so closely identified with Yahweh that the kingship of one is attributed to the other. While in Israel's history as a monarchy, God had ruled Israel through his anointed king, what we see here is the covenant Lord ruling as the great king. The Messiah and the God of Israel act as one. This king is Jesus. Of course, this must be the case. Only in the person of Jesus Christ, truly God and truly man, can the son of David be David's Lord. Only the word of God incarnate can answer the call to sit on the same level as Yahweh. Only Jesus is so united with his Father that he can rule with him in righteousness perfectly. Only Jesus has been exalted in his resurrection and ascension and ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Consider what the Apostle Peter said about Jesus using this psalm. This is in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. He says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this, the day of Pentecost, that, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Jesus did all of this. He is all of this for us and for our salvation. Peter's audience rightly understood the gravity of what they had heard. They know how this psalm ends. So they asked, What then shall we do? What hope is there for those that oppose this king, who is God himself? 
And that same question should ring in our hearts. Because our sin is treason against that same king. If this king is both the son of David and the son of God, what then shall we do? And the answer comes from Peter, both for those he was speaking to that day and to us. Repent and be baptized. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. As many as the Lord our God shall call. What a wondrous king is this king in heaven. This king above all earthly powers and authorities, whose rule and kingdom is unshaken and unshakable, and yet he makes us citizens of that kingdom by grace alone, through faith alone. But sometimes I think we might misunderstand exactly what this kingship of Christ looks like. So let's look now to the reigning king. In Presbyterian circles, we we often talk about the already and the not yet aspects of Jesus' reign. In verses 1 to 3, we have a picture of the alreadiness of his kingship. We're not waiting for Jesus' return for him to become a king. Jesus himself claims all authority in heaven and on earth has already been given to him. Ephesians 1 states clearly that Christ has already been made head of all things. And that's the same testimony we just heard from Peter in Acts 2. And and while Jesus, as God, reigns over all kings, is sovereign over all human affairs, indeed over the, the entire physical universe as well as the spiritual realm, our confession tells us that his kingdom is particularly seen in the visible church as it grows and it extends throughout the earth. As Jesus leads his people in conquest around the world. And importantly, the reign in this psalm is spiritual. Messiah reigns from God's right hand. Jesus does not reign from Washington, D.C. or Moscow or Beijing, or even Jerusalem. But he reigns from heaven above. While the psalm states that Messiah's rule goes out from Zion, the emphasis here is that that's its origin. It's not the capital. Zion is the mountain where the temple was built. It's the place where the covenant presence of God resided with his people. And from there, this kingdom extends, encompassing far beyond the borders of ancient Israel. Of course, the physical temple was destroyed 2,000 years ago because it had become obsolete. Now the church is the temple. The church is the place where God's Holy Spirit resides with his people. The people of God are citizens of a spiritual kingdom. And our lives on earth, in all the various kingdoms of man, are as resident aliens as we look forward to our arrival in the city not made by hands. And this is exactly what Jesus taught about his kingdom. He himself said, his kingdom is not of this world. He escaped the crowds when they wanted to take him by force and make him a king. When Jesus was born, Israel had been under 
the rule of several different empires in succession. He was a poor carpenter in a remote corner of an oppressive and tyrannical empire, and yet he never once attempted to overthrow the day's political structures. He discouraged his followers when they wanted to do that, and he encouraged submission to the governing authorities. His own disciples were comprised of political enemies. Just think about this this band of men following Jesus around the Galilean countryside and eventually into Jerusalem. On the one hand, you have Simon the Zealot, a revolutionary who would have endorsed violent overthrow of the Romans to kick them out of the land. On the other hand, you have Matthew, Levi, the tax collector, the government lackey who had actively participated in an unjust taxation system that targeted his own people. And they're both in the merry band of those men following Jesus around. And Jesus' call to both of them was the same. Repent of your sins and follow me. So let's take a moment to look at ourselves. In a volatile political environment, is it safe to say we live in one of those? We we could be pulled into tribalism along partisan lines. But when we are more willing to suffer for or defend our political affiliation than we are for the sake of Christ and our brothers and sisters in Him, we have lost our way. If we despair because of the state of politics or the academy or the arts or the economy or society, if those things cause us to despair, it shows that we are trusting in princes and horses and chariots and not in the Lord. I don't want to diminish the importance of political life or the dangers that might arise from that arena. But as important as life under the sun is, our central identification must be with King Jesus and his kingdom, not with a political party or a preferred news source. And when we act like that's not true in our everyday lives, we are denying our citizenship in Christ's kingdom and living as if the kingdom of man is our true home. Scripture teaches salvation through faith, not salvation through state. All who trust in Christ alone for their salvation are our fellow citizens in his kingdom. And our king commands that we love them as brothers and sisters. We do this by looking to him and away from the things we might find lacking in one another. Trusting him to bring that kingdom to maturity. The psalm also shows us that the spiritual kingdom is advancing but not by human effort or legislation or the sword. It only advances in the power and the wisdom of the Lord. He's the one that sends out the scepter of this king. This means first, we should not be surprised when we see the gospel attacked or evil done against God's people. Christ rules in the midst of his enemies, not in their absence. But we must respond correctly to this reality. While the church should speak out 
against injustice and unjust rulers. We are called to be prepared to endure persecution for the sake of our Lord. We are called never to compromise the gospel or obedience to God's word, even if called upon by the governing authorities to do so. And we can only do this knowing that we ultimately answer to Jesus and not to men. And on the flip side, the church does not lean on the government to make disciples. Yes, Christians should be faithful citizens. We should use all righteous means available to see peace and justice flourish in our society. But we must remember that we cannot institute enough laws to change human hearts. We cannot reform enough institutions to bring dead sinners to life. The state can and it should protect the church, but it cannot build the church. That is not its function. The governments of the world are the servants of God to restrain evil, but they cannot turn sinners into sons. And a study of history will show us every time church and state go on mission together, it ends with both of them falling apart. Only the Lord can build this kingdom, and he promises to do so as the gospel is proclaimed through word and sacrament. So we, his people, we're called to preach that gospel and to live in keeping with the character of the king and his kingdom law. Because, as verse 3 shows us, while his kingdom is not advanced by his people's efforts alone, it must advance with his people joyfully joining in. It says, in love for their king, they offer themselves freely in the day of his power. They willingly, these people willingly obey their king, and they love his law. And it says they're, they're dressed in holy garments. They're wearing the ceremonial uniforms of priests, not of warriors. Think, think of the honor guard at Buckingham Palace. You know, the guys with the, the red coats and the three-foot-tall black hats. They look pretty impressive as they stand there stoically, reflecting the dignity and the power of their nation and their monarchy. But if a battle broke out, their uniforms would actually hinder them from fighting, wouldn't it? These uniforms serve a ceremonial purpose for a kingdom at peace. They reflect a kingdom on a firm foundation. And these holy garments of God's people are meant to do the same thing. They reflect his glory. Remember, God's people were always called to be a kingdom of priests. They were called to bring the message of reconciliation to the world. So we don't fight like the world. The Great Commission is our call to arms. And as we make disciples, the kingdom grows by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because our king has taken our own rags off of us. And he's clothed us with his own righteousness. When we put them on, we look like him. This means, of course, that our lives are going to look different than those around us. Our priorities, families, our attitude toward God's law, sin, work, money, politics, or our neighbors will probably make us stand out 
We may even seem odd to those who don't belong to this kingdom. And that's okay. Because the righteousness of Jesus Christ is the most beautiful clothing that we can wear. David says that this king's people gather when he calls. It's one reason we come together every Lord's Day. We respond to his call every week, joining together with the church of all places and all times as one body. And as we worship, we declare Christ's rule and reign, and the powers of darkness are pushed back. The psalm says this kingdom spreads like dew covering the earth. So when we're tempted to despair at the sight of the church, seemingly powerless, marginalized, helpless, we must remember the promises of Christ, that he is with us always, that he will redeem a people from every tribe and tongue and nation, that the gates of hell will fall before this king and his army. It's victory. Our victory is certain. And notice also, in this really difficult to interpret verse, there's this birth imagery related to the entrance of the kingdom from the womb of the morning. This should, this should bring to mind Jesus' statement to Nicodemus. You must be born again. No one becomes a citizen of this kingdom on their own will or their own power. It is the free love of the king who brings them in by the rebirth of the Holy Spirit and makes them a part of this kingdom. So then, if you are a citizen of this kingdom, you are born again, clothed in holy garments, united in love to the king and all of his citizens. And this is true whether you feel that it is the case or not. Brother, sister, if you feel unfit to serve in this holy kingdom, Remember that you are. But the king has loved you anyway. And he has brought you in. You cannot disqualify yourself from this kingdom because you could not qualify yourself in the first place. So may your hope and your rest be in that king. And the call to all of us is to join in his people freely offering ourselves to him now. Now in the day of his power. If you have not entered into this kingdom, if your hope and your security lies in your own power or possessions or position or, or anything else, if you have never freely offered yourself to him, today is the day of salvation. Repent of your sins. Believe in Jesus. And you will receive the robe of his righteousness and an inheritance in an everlasting kingdom. So we see the king who is God, the king who is reigning. Verse 4 shows us the king who is a priest, the priest king. And it does seem, doesn't it, that this next declaration of God just drops in out of nowhere. We're in the middle of a song about a king, and Yahweh makes a second promise, one that will not be revoked. The king is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. For David, this, seeing this, this merging of both the offices of king and priest would have been something significant and different. Throughout Israel's history as a monarchy, 
The priests held a separate office from the kings. The priests who served in the temple, they came from the tribe of Levi, while David and his descendants, the rightful kings, were from the tribe of Judah. But Jesus is like that mysterious figure that only shows up one other time in the Old Testament, the priest king of Salem, Melchizedek. Jesus, the king, rules not only for his own glory and benefit, but for the good of all of his people, even to the point of bringing them peace with God as a priest. And his intercession as our priest is effective because his priesthood never ends, because his own self-sacrifice is sufficient, because he has defeated his enemies and none can stand against him. If you remember our study of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews fleshes out Christ's priesthood marvelously. He spends several chapters dwelling on this theme. In chapter 6, he says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So just as Jesus' kingship makes us secure, so does his priesthood. He's a better priest than any of the Levitical priests under the Old Covenant. The author of Hebrews goes on to say this later, but Jesus was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number, because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. We have an advocate that will never cease representing us to his Father, bringing our needs before him. And we can be certain that his prayers will be heard. Because while all the other priests were continually standing and making sacrifices, the work was never done. This priest is seated in the heavenly courts. It's illustrated in Hebrews 10. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. There is nothing to be added to the priestly work of Jesus. His work is sufficient. He has brought us peace with God. And this priesthood of Jesus, it becomes especially good news for us as we move to the final section of this psalm. Because without his sacrifice, without his intercession, we would fall under the category of his enemies. If Jesus were only a king, we would still deserve the judgment that we're about to see him carry out in the closing verses. But because Jesus is also our priest, he took that wrath on himself. 
And instead of that judgment, he gives us the riches of the kingdom. In the day of his power, he conquers his enemies by subduing them, reconciling them to himself, and making them citizens and fellow heirs of his kingdom. But the psalm tells us there's another day to consider. The day of wrath and the warrior king. The picture in the closing verses is one that might be hard for us to swallow. This picture brings the not yet into view. Christ's pursuit of his enemies began with his total sure victory in his cross, resurrection, and his ascension. But it will not be brought unto its completion until he returns to judge the living and the dead. Fully displaying his power even over death in the resurrection of all mankind. David here at the end of the psalm, he moves from the priest king calling together his willing people in the midst of his enemies. And he closes with the vision of a soldier standing alone, having secured the victory, scattering the remnant of his enemies and chasing them down one by one until none is left standing. From the comfort of our prosperous pocket of the freest and richest nation in history, we readily accept gentle Jesus, meek and mild. But our sensitivities might be offended by Jesus on a white horse with the sword coming out of his mouth. And here are the guys from our Friday morning Bible study know it's coming. Every so often I have to pull out this quote from Miroslav Volf. He's a theology professor who grew up in war-torn Croatia. And he writes this about the judgment of God. He says, in a world of violence, it would not be worthy of God not to wield the sword. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make the final end to violence, God would not be worthy of our worship. My he goes on to say, my, my thesis will be unpopular with many Christians, especially theologians in the West. He says, I suggest imagining that you are delivering a lecture in a war zone. Among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have first been plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. The thesis, we should not retaliate since God is perfect, non-coercive love. He doesn't have judgment. Wolf says, soon you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. Despite what deconstructing exvangelicals might say on Twitter, a God without judgment is a God without love. Only someone from a sheltered, privileged, middle-class Western society could even conceive of a judgment-free, loving God. In the real world, the world that's broken by sin, a God without judgment is not a God worthy of worship. Victims of genocide and oppression and violence 
know this. The persecuted church around the world knows this. The martyrs under the throne know this. And if you have experienced or you have witnessed true injustice, you know this. When you see or you experience unjust suffering and you burn with anger or you cry in despair for answers to see things made right, the priest king is your only hope. Because as our priest, Jesus also suffered injustice. The one true innocent, he was betrayed, beaten, and killed. He took the full brunt of the wrath of God So you can tell him of your pain, of your suffering, of your anger at injustice. And you can hear his answer. I know. We do not have an unsympathetic high priest, but one that suffered in every way that we do and much more. And he gives us psalms of lament so that we can bring these burdens and lay them before him. But he also gives us imprecatory psalms. Because as king, he will leave no stone unturned in his pursuit of justice. Every wrong will be made right. Every evil deed will have its due punishment meted out. Either on those that commit it, or on the Lord Jesus himself. Sin and unrighteousness will be completely eradicated from this world. And shalom. Peace, wellness, wholeness will be restored to God's creation. And that is not accomplished by the church. Those joyous people in the holy garments we saw in the opening verses, they're missing in this closing scene. Verses 5 through 7 portray the warrior in all his might as he catches every enemy, as he wins the territory and as he drinks from the very streams of those he has conquered. This may seem terrifying. If we're not among those who have freely given ourselves to Messiah on the day of his power, it ought to be. It is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of a living God. But for us, for God's people, those who are clothed in his righteousness, We have nothing to fear. In fact, we look forward to that day of judgment. Because for us, justice has already been served. Our high priest took it for us. And he intercedes perfectly for us. So now our king works all things together for the good of those who love him. And when he executes his justice, it is for his glory and for our benefit. He avenges the injustice done to his people. He sees and will not forget. No one is immune. No worldly power, no authority, no money is enough to save from his judgment. The psalm says he strikes down kings and chiefs alike. You've got to serve somebody. If you don't serve King Jesus, you're choosing slavery to a master that will be destroyed by the rightful king. He will only end in misery. Then at the end, 
after every remaining bit of darkness is snuffed out by the light of the world. He will deliver this kingdom over to his father and dwell in peace with his people forever. This is our glorious hope. So Christ Church, behold Jesus, your God, the reigning warrior, priest, king. Place all of your hope and your trust in him, for he will not fail you. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so grateful for your mercy shown to us. We are so grateful for your love for us. You loved us first. We would not have loved you if you had not sought us. We are grateful for the mercy shown us in the Lord Jesus. We are grateful for his power that protects his people. Lord, give us hope and faith in him alone. Turn us away from our idols to yourself by the power of your spirit. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.